up to Matthew chapter 3. Speaking about repentance, um, a very well-covered uh, topic, of course, in the Bible, um, perhaps one that we speak of fairly fairly regularly, um, although I must say probably, you know, we often quote uh, Acts uh, chapter 2, verse 38, about repenting, being baptised, receiving the Holy Spirit. We probably tend to spend more time on baptism and receiving the Holy Spirit. Um, Perhaps that's because most of the people that maybe would come into our meeting are already in a state of repentance, already looking for a change in their life, and that's why they're there in the first place. And maybe it's the uh, repentance that they're a little bit more familiar if they're someone who's been in other churches, they're fairly aware of uh, of this concept of repentance, and maybe it's it's baptism, maybe it's the Holy Spirit that needs a bit more explaining to them. But nevertheless, it's really good to go through these scriptures and build up our understanding of what it means to to repent. Um, it's as I said, a word we use all the time, but it's 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 really important that we understand uh, the meaning of it. Um, let's start in Matthew chapter three, verse one. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this word, uh, repent, metanoeo, or however you pronounce it in the Greek, uh, it's, it's built of, that word's made up of two, two other Greek words. One meaning, um, afterwards, and another meaning to exercise the mind or to comprehend, to consider. So to afterwards consider, um, to think differently. Sometimes we'll have something happen in our life that will make us think differently about a certain topic. As we repent, we actually think differently about our lives. We think differently about our Creator. Um, it is about having a change in our mindset. Um, we'll ca- carry on in verse 3 where it says, For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Um, I'll read that verse from the uh, New Living, the NLC, New Living Translation. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, He is the voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. John's John the Baptist's uh, role was really to prepare people for who was coming after him, for Jesus Christ. Removing obstacles, preparing people's minds, preparing people's hearts, preparing people's lives so that they were ready for who was about to arrive. That it wouldn't be something, something that came completely out of the blue, but they had been prepared within their minds. And you can see this purpose of repentance that John was calling people to. He was preparing their minds and hearts for Jesus Christ. In uh, verse 4, the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leather girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptised of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance. Um, 
I'm just going to read uh, verse 8 in a couple of different translations. So this is verse 8. In the NLT says, Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. The Amplified Bible says, Bring forth fruit that is consistent with repentance. Let your lives prove your change of heart. Now, part of the reason we're looking a bit into these scriptures, looking into the meaning of these these words, is to build an understanding that real repentance results in action. It results in real change in people's lives. It's not simply an acknowledgement of God or an acknowledgement of Jesus Christ, but, of course, true repentance. If you're repented of something, then, of course, you have a desire for that thing to change in your life. You don't want it to be a part of your life anymore. You want to have a, to, you know, as people say in, tester, in testimony, you know, to have that 180 degree turnaround in your life so that you're heading in a, a different direction. You're heading down one path, but you were, you were, become repentant of that and decide, no, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. I'm going this direction. And there needs to be with the repentance, the actual change, the action in our life. I did skip over one, there was one other verse I wanted to read from the Amplified. That was verse 2 where it says in the um, King James and saying, Repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Amplified Bible brings that out in verse 2. So John the Baptist saying, Repent, think differently, change your mind, regretting your sins and changing your conduct, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Really builds this picture of repentance, doesn't it? You know, and again, it, it, I think this emphasizes the, the importance of the action involved in our conversion. We, again, when I mentioned Acts chapter 2, how we probably spend a bit more time explaining baptism and the Holy Spirit to people, because the, we know that they are actions, one that we do, one that God does, but they are things that happen in our life that confirm that we are right with Him. And yet repentance goes along the same path in that there's still action required. And it's talking about the uh, the state of who we are, that we need to have a desire that who we are gets transformed by the power of God. That is the starting point. So when people, you know, a lot of people talk about repentance, belief and repentance in particular in churches, but it's so much more than a simple acknowledgement or turning to Jesus Christ. It's about what's What's going to follow from that repentance? What is actually going to change in our lives from that repentance? Uh, flick back into the Old Testament with me, Jonah chapter 3. So I think we're all pretty well uh, aware of the story of Jonah, uh, that he was called by God to go to Nineveh to tell the people to repent. But, of course, Jonah fled from God. At, f- at face value, you'd, you'd sort of expect out of fear. Um, but there's actually more to it than that. You know, Nineveh were the enemy. Jonah actually didn't want the enemy to repent. To, um, and, and you see that in chapter four. We're not particularly focusing on that. We're, we're more focusing on the repentance of Nineveh. And, and what I get out of it is it's quite a surprise. It's something that you wouldn't expect. Enemy of Israel, a very wicked, corrupt, uh, city, and here comes this lonely old Jonah into Nineveh, and 
you wouldn't actually expect him to achieve much. And yet, through the power of God, they actually did repent. Let's pick it up. So chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. I'm sure we know, you know, this full story of the first one being swallowed by the fish and all those sorts of bits and pieces. Verse 2, arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days uh, journey. Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey and he cried and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. So here we see the, their demonstration, their action that came from their repentance. It wasn't just an acknowledgement that they were, weren't right with God, but they actually demonstrated that repentance. They showed their humility. Verse 6, and uh, for, for, word, for word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him, covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Uh, the king of Nineveh, the top dog in this city, and yet even he is demonstrating his repentance. You can imagine the humility that that would take. You are the king, and I'm guessing probably leading up to this point, not a particularly good king. I'm sure there's a lot of corrupt and evil things that he did leading up to this point, and yet the word of God comes, and he takes action upon what he hears, and he shows his humility. He shows his repentance. He shows his acknowledgement, I need to change. He is that change of mind after Jonah speaks the word to him. Verse 7, And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God, Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil and he, uh, that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. In in the Old Testament, as we look into the, to this word that we read, repent, as you can see, sometimes you see uh, like God uh, talking about God repenting of evil. We can't think of that as the same as how we repent. It's actually quite a different thing. If you if you look into it, it, may, it can mean to um to be moved to pity or to have compassion. So the Lord actually had compassion. It wasn't like a regret. It wasn't like a feeling. Oh, what was I thinking that I was going to? Um, punish these people. That's not, you know, how God works. God had compassion and mercy on the people of Nineveh. So that, that's what it's talking about when it's talking about God repenting of what he was going to do to them. Another thing I get out of this story is that we can't judge a book by its cover. Again, at face value, you'd think of Nineveh, you'd think of this city, you'd think of the king of Nineveh, and you'd think to yourself, no way. This massive city, totally corrupt, you know, just entrenched in the wickedness that they are up to, what's Jonah going to do? They're not going to repent. That would be my expectation. And yet we see 
they did repent. So if we, let's bring that forward a few thousand years and, and talk about ourselves in today's society, we can never look at other people and think to ourselves, they're too far gone. They're never going to repent. They're never going to act upon the things that God has um, asked them to do. That's not actually up to us to to uh, to make that decision. We can't be in the situation Jonah was in, where he was sort of in his mind, sort of making the decision for God and saying, "No, I'm going the other way. I don't want I don't want Nineveh to repent." Um, we've got a message, just like Jonah had, and I think it's one of those real challenges as Christians to not judge a book by its cover, to not just try and um, uh, make up assumptions in our own mind as to how people are going to respond to the gospel. I reckon some of the most unlikely-looking people could be the most likely. Maybe they're the most in need. Maybe they're the ones that recognise, hey, yep, my life's a mess. I need someone to come in and sort it out. Second Chronicles, we'll turn back to now, chapter 7. Picking up the story of um, Solomon um, having uh, built the temple. You might remember the story. David was told that he wouldn't be the one that would build the temple. It would be his son uh, Solomon, a man of peace. Um, and in Second Chronicles, chapter 7, verse 11, it says, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all that came into Solomon's heart to make in the house of the Lord and his own house, he prosper, prosperously affected. We're all in the same spot. So Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12 now. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have, chosen thy, uh, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. Um, he's picking up on a, a lot of other warnings that he had, that God had given Israel. The ifs, you know, if you go down this path, I'm going to bless you. If you go down that path, there'll be punishment. Um, if, verse 14, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I don't want to go a couple more verses. Now mine eyes shall be open and mine ears attend unto thy prayer that is made in this place. For now have I chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever. And mine eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. As we read through um, these verses, it reminds me of in so First uh, Corinthians chapter three sixteen. Know ye not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? In the Old Testament, they had this physical temple that became this dwelling place of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit today. Okay, so as we read these. Uh, this promise that as we turn to the Lord, he has a desire to have his ears, his eyes open in verse 15, his ears attend to our prayers because his dwelling place is in us. So this is just a, an example of what was to come through the Holy Spirit. 
But again, right back here in the Old Testament, we can see God building the picture about repentance. That even when maybe we drift a bit off the path or whatever it may be, the promise is as we come back to the Lord, as we say, Lord, I'm, I can see I've slipped up here, but I want to get things right with you. Turn, as it says in verse 14, from the, the wicked ways, whatever we were, whatever path we had headed down. And he says, I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. That's the promise to, to our people. I know we, we've probably heard similar wording in the media. I won't, won't go into the details. Um, in recent months where people sort of use these scriptures about the, the bushfires and all that sort of, sort of stuff. But we've got to pick up on verse, start of verse 14. If my people which are called by my name, these are promises to God's people. You know, there's a lot of people, you know, others in this world that we want to become God's people, but these are promises for God's people that as we humble ourselves, as we pray, as we seek the face of the Lord, his promise is to forgive. His promise is to um, get past what's happened. It's a it's a wonderful thing. I think is our human nature is sometimes people will wrong us and we find it really difficult to get over that. God's much better at it perhaps than we are. When we slip up, God recognizes our humanity, and as long as we follow this instruction, we humble ourselves, we come back to the Lord, we turn back to Him. He has a desire to forgive us. He has a desi- his whole desire is to have a good um, relationship with us. And so that's not going to really work if he's holding on to the grudges from the past. He has a desire that we be reconciled to him. When we look at the word um, humble, where it talks in verse 14, if my people sh- who call by my name shall humble themselves, the word literally means to bend the knee. It goes on to, exp- to explain to be humbled, to be subdued, to be brought down, to be low, to be under. So it sort of builds our understanding of this humility that we need to show towards God. Let's go forward. Uh, how are we got time? We've got Luke chapter 18. Rip, uh, whip through this one fairly quickly. I think it um, pretty well speaks for itself, these verses. Um, it's just building on that humility that I was talking about from uh, from the story with Solomon. So Luke 18, verse starting in verse 10. Two men, this is Jesus speaking, two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Plenty of, uh, particularly, probably particularly, um, Old Testament, um, examples that we could look at that demonstrate this. Those that are humble being exalted, those that are, um, proud, 
being pulled down by God. We can think of maybe some of the uh, some of the kings and such and um, and such in the Old Testament. But this um, uh, reminder here for us about the importance of the humility. And the, the Pharisee was doing himself no favours in comparing himself with the publican and, and thinking like, how good am I? How much better off am I than this guy? You know, thank the Lord, I'm nothing like that bloke. Um, is kind of the attitude that he had. And yet it was the humility that provided the just, the, um, justification, the justifying in the end. All right, Acts, Acts chapter 26. We're going to go over and see uh, Paul recounting his testimony. Paul before uh, King Agrippa, Acts chapter 26. We'll start in verse 12. It says, Whereupon as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me, and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the goad, uh, against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of these things which you have seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send you, to open their eyes, and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea, and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. I'll just, I'll read through that last verse, so verse 20, um, from the Amplified. And as I'm reading through this, perhaps trying to remember some of the, um, scriptures we talked about early on about the, the meaning uh, behind repentance, the action that's involved in repentance. So verse 20 from the Amplified. But I openly proclaimed first to those at Damascus, then at Jerusalem, and throughout the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent change their inner self, their old way of thinking, and turn to God, doing deeds and living lives which are consistent with repentance. So it's all well and good to perhaps have an attitude of repentance or have a, you know, or, or speak about repentance, but are the lives that we lead consistent with that repentance? Is the change that happens when we convert to Jesus Christ consistent with that repentance. Um, the result of true repentance is a change in who we are, a change in our behaviour. I think repentance is probably um, the stumbling block of the world. It's, it's, that, it's that real challenge for people to humble themselves 
to accept the ways of God and to be repentant and have a, have a desire for that change in their life. As opposed to perhaps, I reckon, in the religious world, I think baptism and the Holy Spirit are maybe the biggest stumbling blocks. You can see what I mean? Like it tends to be, I think, that those that are um, maybe not particularly believers in God, that it's hard for them to, it's a challenge for them to come to repentance. And for those that are already churchgoers or whatever it is, it's often the details of baptism and receiving the Holy Spirit that are their stumbling block. They're the things that they can't seem to get get past. We see the, the, um, the situation with Agrippa a bit further down in verse 28. You know, here's, here's Paul recounting his testimony, you know, as, as we've heard testimonies tonight. And how does he respond? How does Agrippa, the king, respond? Then Agrippa in verse 28 said unto Paul, Almost you persuadest me to be a Christian. You've, you've almost got me, but I'm just not there. I'm not at a point of repentance. I'm not at a point of humbling myself before God. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all that hear me this day were both both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. Now, I wish not only you, Agrippa, but everyone here could have the wonderful change in their lives that I've had, is what he's saying to them. And that is, of course, our desire, isn't it? We just so desire that those around us, you know, we, we might not be speaking to a king, but, um, you know, sometimes it's people that we really care about or maybe it's just a stranger in the street. Whoever it is, this is our desire. We wish you were, we wish you had what we had. We wish you had had that change in your life. You had that opportunity to walk in the spirit of God. Right. Um, Acts chapter 2. I could probably just, I'm actually only just reading the one verse. I just found something, um, found a little difference in, in a couple of translations and it made, made me realize that I think sometimes in the scriptures people's, um, beliefs, particularly in, in more modern translations of the Bible, Beliefs have controlled or influenced the way they've translated the Bible. And I noticed it in this very well-known verse to us, so I'm not there myself. Not that I really need to do. Um, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. So Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Okay? I'm going to read two versions to you, and I want you to try and pick up on the difference. Uh, Amplified Classic. You remember Pastor Steve mentioned maybe a couple of months ago about Amplified Classic and and the new Amplified, which is uh, I think the most recent one's 2015 edition. So Amplified Classic. Peter answered them, Repent, change your views and purpose to accept the will of God in your inner selves instead of rejecting it, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness and release from your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So that's Amplified Version 1. Amplified Version 2, so the, the modern edition. And Peter said to them, Repent, change your old way of thinking, turn from your sinful ways, accept and follow Jesus as the Messiah, and be baptized each of you in the name of Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness of your sins, 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see that little subtle add-in? So it's very much this um, uh, salvation through faith alone doctrine that has actually influenced that particular translation of the scripture. So what they're doing is they're they're taking um, the salvation away from the action and putting it back simply to the belief. So the actions that you're taking, they're only because you've already been forgiven, because you've already been saved. So it's this little subtle add-in that actually has a completely different meaning. And when you word it like that, you can see how, you know, uh, a lot of churches today would say, well, all you have to do is believe and you're saved. And if you like, you can get baptized and you can receive the Holy Spirit as a sort of optional extras down the track. So sometimes we do have to be um, cautious uh, around some of the more modern translations, even though I must admit I probably quote the modern amplified Bible more than I quote the um, uh, classic. But it's just, it's always, you know, sometimes we, Need to look into these things a little bit more. When we're talking to people that um, bring up, um, that say maybe you know, oh, I was, you know, I've already been baptized, I was christened as a baby. We would often respond, well, you know, when Peter was explaining to these people what they should do, he told them to repent and to be baptized. Now we would ask the question, how can a baby repent? Um, you may or may not be aware, but um, the Catholics had actually thought of this, and they did. They've got they've got their They've got their Catholic answer. And the Catholic response to that is godparents, something that uh, we all hear about but perhaps don't know of their actual purpose from a Catholic point of view, apart from the, the ongoing care for the child. Maybe we understand that aspect of it. But uh, so as you read this explanation about godparents, as with the Church of England, the godparents' eligibility is laid down by church law. Godparents must be 16 or over, a Roman Catholic who has both received Holy Communion and been confirmed. They must be free of church penalties. Um, that sounds a bit like demerit points with the cops or something, but anyway. And have been appointed by the parents, but not be the biological parent of the child. So some criteria on who can be a godparent there. Once again, these rules are subject to interpretation as all things in Catholic Church. And once again, the roles, the role of godparent carries no legal responsibilities and does not make you a legal guardian. During the service, godparents are asked to answer questions and make declarations on the child's behalf. These vary according to the service, but we have outlined the most common form below. The parents and godparents have to make three declarations that they turn to Christ, remember this is on the child's behalf, this is not speaking about themselves, not speaking about their godparents or the parents, it's on the child's behalf. Three declarations, that they turn to Christ, that they repent of their sins, and that they renounce evil. So that is the purpose of godparents within the Catholic Church. So when we, you know, if a Catholic actually knew their own doctrine, when we ask the question, you know, oh, how does a baby repent? That would be how they they would respond, but of course we know how how incorrect that is. No one can repent. I can't repent for anyone else in this room. No one else in this room can repent for me. Repentance is between us and God. Everything about our relationship with God is as an individual. Yes, we're called into a church and 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 the body of Christ, but our 
one-on-one relationship with God is our own responsibility. That cannot be handballed to anybody else, no matter how much they may care about us. It is between us and God. So they must answer each of these. Oh, that's, yeah, I won't go into that anyway. I think that the point's been made. In Philippians 2 verse 12 tells us to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Our salvation is up to us. It can't be left up to anyone else. Just a little bit of an interesting fact. Let's finish in Luke 15 and verse 11. Uh, a, and he, Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living, though his inheritance. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found and they began to be merry. Just wanted to quickly skim through that story and um, just to emphasize the fact, as we read in Second Chronicles with the story of Solomon, that promise from God to Israel, the same applies to us. You know, Hopefully we don't end up in this situation where we've ended up away from the Lord. But sometimes, as I said, maybe we just drift a little bit or something creeps into our life that's not quite right. The same principle applies of turning back to the Lord and the same reaction applies, that the Lord rejoices when his people come into alignment with him. They've drifted off the path a little bit when they come back into alignment with him. If we have our desire to be walking in the ways of the Lord and not to um, be drawn off to the left of the right, but if we do get, you know, something pulls us away a little bit, we've got to turn back to God. We've got to humble ourselves. We've got to bow the knee, as, the, as that word in the Old Testament really means, turn back to the Lord in our humility and this is his reaction, celebration, joy, rejoicing. This was my son that was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found and they began to be merry. That's how the Lord treats his people and all the people said. Amen.